Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined with by Christiana Pereira. Christiana is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. She holds a PhD in political science from Stanford, which she gained in August 2020, and does some fascinating work on local institutions and governance outcomes in Lebanon. She's done a great deal of fieldwork in country and she uses multi-methods approaches to to reflect on the various interactions between governance and institutions. So Christiana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We've we've been fascinated by the work that you've been doing, and the the stuff you've been doing on on governance and non-governments uh, or not governing, I guess. So we're really looking forward to to talking with you today about about your work. So, as per usual, I, I start with a question about what got you interested in in the Middle East and academia. So, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. Well, um, you know, I came into college and my family is Brazilian and I originally had the intent of working on Latin American politics. Okay. And, and that was sort of going to be my, my uh, path of study. And somehow, and I'm not really sure how, I think the, the courses that I wanted to take uh, were not available. And I ended up in a course on the Middle East uh, my first semester of my freshman year. And really just sort of was fascinated. Um, it really upended... Uh, all of my previous uh, conceptions from growing up in the U.S. about what the region looked like from politics to history and culture. Uh, you know, I, I came of age in, in a time when America's sort of misadventures, imperial misadventures in the region were, were widely covered. And for whatever reason, having this sort of intellectual perspective was really fascinating. And so from there, it kind of just snowballed. I took Arabic. I, I traveled in the region in college. Uh, and, and I was a policy major, but I was always really interested less in this sort of exercise of imposing solutions onto another part of the world and more just about more interested in, in these grounded understandings of, uh, the factors that led to how that part of the world looks today and how, how politics sort of intersect with, with the everyday experience of, I guess, of being governed Amazing. That's that's really really interesting. Particularly the um, the the path that you could easily have taken into into Latin America, which would have been a, a rather different story, I guess. But before asking about your your first trip to the region, what what was it that you found fascinating when you took that that first Middle East class, um, kind of by accident, I guess. What what was it that was challenging your your preconceived ideas about the region? I think I I came in, frankly, my preconceived ideas were next to none. Right, and okay. <laughs> so this was sort of, uh, you know, a, a course that grounded, you know, to the instructor's credit, uh, it was a course that grounded a lot of these sort of contemporary outcomes that are often problematized and even pathologized in the American understanding of the region, you know, authoritarianism, lack of economic development, uh, and it grounded them in a more sort of complex historical understanding, moving even back, you know, into the Ottoman era, even though it was a contemporary political science course. Uh, and so I, I liked sort of taking these common sense notions of, 
of, uh, you know, why the world looks like it does today and, and grounding them in these more sort of like historical understandings. Sure. That's, yeah, really, really interesting to hear, to hear that. So with that in mind, then, when you first traveled to the region, where, where was it and what were your, your initial assumptions and impressions? Um, well, I spent a brief period in Egypt. I, I spent a summer in Turkey. Uh, you know, there was a course about the sort of intellectual history of, of the region. And, right. uh, you know, in particular, looking at different sort of like strains of Orientalist thought and how they intersected with, um, you know, different intellectual approaches that were being developed in the region. Uh, and then spent a bit more time in Jordan just studying Arabic. I was in, uh, not in the capital, but in a, a sort of um, area away, Irbid. And it was just really fascinating. I, I loved sort of just living in the region. And I, I, I but I, I went for a week to Lebanon, uh, just kind of on vacation. And, um, you know, in Lebanon, I would say, you know, much like other, other contexts in the region, but I would say maybe to an even more extreme degree, um, politics is immediately sort of relevant and visible, right? Yeah, you can see yeah, yeah. Even what the first thing I, that struck me, I remember, was just seeing these, you know, of course, these ubiquitous political posters um, commemorating past and present, uh, um, you know, political figures of note. And, um, you know, I, as someone who was interested in identity politics and, uh, and social welfare policy, it was just a context that I really wanted to understand more. And so... When I came to grad school, I, I, uh, I, I knew I wanted to, to do more on the Lebanese context. Amazing. All for taking a week in, in Lebanon as a whole day sort of shaped, <laughs> the, <laughs> shaped the, the future. So tell us about, about grad school then. You, you went and you did your, your master's program, then you went into a PhD. So what were you, what were you wanting to do in the, in the PhD dissertation? And, and where was that? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I did my, you know, dual master's and PhD at, at Stanford. And from from the beginning, I knew that I wanted uh, my approach to my dissertation and my research in general to be guided uh, by, by field work. So not only sort of developing a research question and then testing it in a context, but really letting sort of local understandings of what was important guide the questions that I posed rather than sort of imposing what was important a priori. And sure, yeah. I know that, I mean, these are both approaches that are used in political science, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I, I spent the first three summers of grad school in Lebanon. Uh, I was doing, you know, Arabic at, at the American University of Beirut, and I was also doing a little bit of my own research. And uh, the first sort of topic of interest that I got into was uh, the politics of electricity provision. And, and this was a narrower topic than what I ended up writing about for my dissertation, but it really introduced me to this sort of web of, of local and state level actors uh, that, that intersected and related to one another as it pertained to, to service provision. And, and a, the provision of a service that is, is really crucially important to people's lives and that's provided really inefficiently. Yeah, and, and poorly, much to the detriment of people's livelihoods. So, when was this, Christiana? This was I, I started uh, going back to Lebanon uh, summer of 2015, and then I was also there uh, summer 2016, which was when the local elections happened, and which sort of led me into into studying municipalities and municipal politics. 
Right. You know, I was I was also I was living there most of 2017 through 2019. Okay, so you you lived through the the various sets of protests and various challenges to to governance and state politics that have been taking place over the past however many years now. So I guess you got a first-hand view of 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 the various um I'm thinking of a polite way of putting this the various intricacies let's say of of Lebanese politics and service provision there. I don't know if I'll ever understand all of the intricacies of Lebanese <laughs> politics, but uh, but no, yeah, I, I I was able to uh, see and, and attend some of the the Ustank protests that happened in 2015 around yeah. the issue of waste management provision. Uh, that was something that got me really interested in the politics of waste management as well, uh, and that's that's a sort of key outcome that I look at in my dissertation. Uh, and then you know I think there are strains of continuity, of course, between those protests and. Uh, what's been going on since 2019 uh, with the the sort of October Revolution, for sure. Yeah, of course. So you you've mentioned um, electricity and waste management, but your thesis does more than that. So just tell us a little bit about what you were doing on the thesis, and then we can perhaps dive a little deeper into some of the questions around governance and not governing. Sure. I mean, I would say a part of my thesis uh, was. Uh, really, I, I guess, uh, driven by uh, a desire to construct an understanding of institutional or regime stability in contemporary Lebanon that doesn't rely on sectarianism as a key <laughs> variable. And sure. I say that not because there, that, that isn't a relevant variable. It, of course, is. And I think a lot of great work has been done uh, you know, by scholars, particularly Lebanese scholars, uh, that that documents that. But I wanted to sort of almost as a thought exercise say, like, can we understand this context? Can we understand the way that that this regime has been upheld so stably uh, through an understanding that that frames elite divisions, elite cleavages differently? And what I ended up doing was sort of charting out the history of the relationship between the central state and uh, peripheral institutions and elites in Lebanon. So starting in the pre-war era, um, really starting in the late Ottoman era when, when the, the sort of modern municipal institution was founded, uh, and then moving into the war, the civil war, looking at how the relationship between the central state uh, or what was left of it and municipal institutions changed and then how control was sort of consolidated over the periphery in the post-war era. Uh, and so thinking through that sort of political division as being really relevant uh, to how these dominant post-war political parties have, have colluded to remain in power. Sure. I mean, that's, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm particularly intrigued by the effort to to look at um, ways beyond focusing on sectarianism in which all of this this uh, plays out, but I wonder how do you how do you untangle that from the the prevalence of sect based difference in Lebanon? I think it's a really worthwhile task, but there's there's so much um, sort of saturation, I guess, of, of sectarianism in Lebanon. So how do you untangle that or or, or move beyond it? Well, sure. I mean, the question that I continually ask myself is, you know, you know, just because a variable is present or doing work in a particular context doesn't mean it's necessarily 
enacting an influence on every single political outcome, right? Yeah. And so if you're interested in understanding, for example, public opinion in Lebanon, if you're interested in understanding sort of micro-level intercommunal relations, one really can't do that without understanding political sectarianism as a phenomena and, and of course, going back and charting how it was, you know, created um, and, it, you know, and, and making sure not to sort of primordialize that factor. But, <laughs> yeah. but, in, but I'm really interested in, in distributive outcomes and regime stability. And I think oftentimes the Lebanese regime, right, this group of, you know, elites in the post-war era and even going prior um, who, who are in positions of political power, are often framed as, you know, of course, because of the confessional system, um, they are, you know, institutionally uh, designated as being of different sects. Uh, but apart from that, they're often framed as being, because of sectarianism, sort of divided and gridlocked, always in conflict with one another. And that's immediately ascribed to sectarianism. But what I wanted to argue, and I'm not the first to argue this, is that this regime, this uh, elite cadre is actually incredibly united um, in part, that gridlock is is purposeful. It's a tactic. It's not uh, it, it's not sort of uh, uh, coming to some sort of inevitable conclusion of sectarianism. Um, and in fact, the the political elite class in Lebanon are are incredibly collusive in a way that defies sectarian differences, uh, and that has ramifications uh, for how these different localities are governed. Yeah. There's so many things to to pick up on that, I guess. Um, you you talk about this this cabal and this sort of colluding cabal, and that I think is is an interesting sort of point to focus on here because the members of that cabal are themselves uh, Zuama members of uh, elite members of particular sectarian communities whose whose sort of low level members might be engaged in and performing uh, daily actions of uh, sort of reproducing sect-based difference, if you will, but that yet their leaders appear to be, as you say, colluding with one another. So where, where is that tension? How is that tension playing out? I'm, I'm really curious as to, as to the ways in which that, that plays out in, in sort of different ways. You've got this, this governance that seems to circumvent um, sect-based difference and requires collusion, but then you've got the low-level acts that that in some ways reproduce it. Yeah, that's a great point, um, and I like the way you phrased that. I would, I, I don't think of these tactics necessarily as being in practice intention. Even if you know, if you wanted to think of these elites as pure ideological actors, of course, um, you know, their collusion is sort of belying uh, these these sectarian divisions, right? Yeah. But the use of, po- like, sectarian rhetoric at the popular level, uh, telling constituents that you're going to fight on behalf of their community, communities that they may care very much about, um, and then also, you know, colluding with other elites or sort of partnering with them to use less loaded language, um, in you know, in order to ensure that you remain in power, you know, these are not mutually exclusive. And what I found in my research is that, of course, you know, um, this sort of populist sectarian rhetoric is used by many political elites in Lebanon, most, you, you even say. Um, but on the other hand, the way in which they manage, uh, you know, state institutions, the way in which just resources are allocated, 
the way in which distributive resources are allocated at the local level um, is in, is incredibly coordinated, right? This is yeah. not a battle. Uh, this is, in fact, uh, a very deliberate strategy. And it's a strategy meant to, you know, in plain language, to, to distribute as little as possible uh, while remaining in power. Yeah. That's really, really fascinating. And I guess... It brings in some of the the policy focused stuff that you did um, earlier on in your in your academic journey, but I, I want to delve slightly deeper into this, if that's okay, please. And sure. I think that this is the the point where you you really go off into um, fascinating work around not governing. I mean, you call it in one piece the art of not governing, which I found a really fascinating turn of phrase. So I wonder if you can just elaborate a bit on on what what was going on when you when you constructed that phrase. Why why the art of not governing rather than anything else? And what does it mean, I guess, as well? Sure. So I will just give uh, full credit. That is not totally my turn of phrase. Uh, there's a book by by James Scott, a scientist <laughs> in anthropology, called, sure. an anthropologist called The Art of Not Being Governed. And, yeah. and I love that book. And this was a deliberate play on that. But insofar as okay. it's maybe 50, 20 to 50 percent unique, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll say, um, you know, something that's, you know, I guess I'll start with with the qualitative methodology that I employed in my dissertation and that, um, you know, was really impactful in in my thinking about what different localities looked like in Lebanon, which is I I use these paired case comparisons of municipalities that looked very similar, uh, but for the level of control that was exacted over them by this sort of cartel of elites in Lebanon. So, uh, you know, I chose uh, in particular two cities, Saida and Tripoli, that demographically look very similar, uh, but for the fact that one, Saida, has been heavily under the control, heavily co-opted by this this political party, the future movement, Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is sort of more politically competitive. It it, it has elected a sort of uh, local government that goes against, that has occasionally gone against the interests of of central state elites. Right. And and what I found was that, um, you know, in terms of the distributive strategies of the state, how it it allotted, you know, power or how it allotted allotted resources, what I found is that basically Saida, uh, this party-controlled municipality, was given the resources necessary to govern in a very basic way, right? Um, And granted, people in Saida are not happy with the quality of municipal services that are provided. They're not happy with the degree to which they're awarded central transfers from the central state. Obviously, this this has been a major peripheral site of protest, but it's better than nothing. And the alternative uh, is not that they could demand more, but rather if they were to sort of rise up and demand more, uh, that that they would be punished, right? And so the alternative to Saida is Tripoli, a place that, that... where the municipal government has virtually ceased functioning. And so what I found basically, like to sort of summarize that and to take the proper nouns out, was that, uh, you know, because of the sort of centralized nature of control over local governance in Lebanon and elsewhere in the Middle East, um, but in Lebanon, this allows the central state to basically reward those local governments that are politically loyal and to punish those that are not. And so the sort of equilibrium outcome of that um, is what I argue in the dissertation is that places will sort of eventually um, become loyal because the alternative is to be not governed. And so not governing in that sort of set of strategies is just important as governing. 
Right. Okay. So there's there's a great deal at stake here as a as a mechanism of, of control or co-optation, perhaps. Absolutely. And I think one of the implications of this um, that I talk a little bit about in the dissertation um, is that because the central government in Lebanon is capable of and does actually deny sort of deviant municipalities, non-loyal municipalities, the resources to govern, if you're an opposition movement that sort of emerges at a grassroots level in a particular municipality, whether it's an urban one like Beirut or sort of outside in a more rural area, and you want to, for example, you know, beat this party cartel, you want to beat your local political party and um, run an independent municipality. Um, You can do that for one term, uh, but the central state will effectively punish your municipality for having elected you. And so it really sort of snuffs out the potential to challenge this extant group of, you know, party-based elites um, and and sort of eliminates your ability to create a a track record of good governance as as an opposition group. Yeah, you've you've just flagged up a, a really important point that I was going to raise um, around contestation and this this picture that you're painting um, pretty pretty gloomy uh, suggests that there's there's very little scope for any type of formal opposition to the centralized uh, elite of the of the central government. So. Where do and I know you've you've written on this for for the monkey cage and and elsewhere. Where do the the recent protests fit in all of this? Where you have um, ordinary people taking to the streets, quote unquote, ordinary people taking to the streets and chanting "all of them means all of them," calling for an end to this this corrupt nepotism. Where where does that fit into the the bigger picture? Yeah, well, uh, part of what I I argue um, in the dissertation is that um, this strategy of distributive reward and punishment that Lebanon's party cartel used was almost too effective, right? Right. Um, So in the short to medium run, uh, it effectively impeded voters, you know, an opposition movement's ability to sort of rise and to gain a track record in local governance or, t- and, and, you know, effectively from there to compete in, in national level electoral competition. Um, but in the longer run, the strategy worked so well that what you saw by, you know, certainly by the 20 teens at the time that I was doing field work was that, you know, the municipalities, because control was becoming increasingly consolidated under the party cartel at the local level. Um, even those municipalities that were sort of uh, most loyal, most most under the control of the party cartel weren't receiving a lot, right? Right. Um, and so effectively these areas that, you know, looked somewhat different also looked kind of the same and that everybody had a set of common grievances. Um, and so, you know, the problem in a, in a situation like this is, you know, how do you get voters to coordinate around, around the concept of, of change, around throwing these elites out? And um, by virtue of, of governance being so incredibly deleterious across the entire country, uh, really, um, even with some, you know, you know, important variation, is that it, was, it allowed people to, to coordinate around, around a set of unified demands, because their demands, regardless of region, regardless of sectarian composition, you know, of course there were differences, but there was a set of common grievances and common demands. Yeah, there were, and I mean that's what some of some of the the Sepad fellows have been exploring the the ways in which these 
these common demands and common grievances helped to establish um, trans, post, anti-sectarian movements or acts of desectarianization, as, as some people have referred to it as. But one of the things that that I know you've touched on, and I I found particularly interesting in these in these protest movements, were efforts to try and co-opt the protesters by the elites. In somewhat of a contradictory moment, they were sort of trying to speak to the protesters as though the protesters represented maybe some of their own objectives and demands. So, where do the uh, I, well maybe the respond maybe the question is. What was the response of the elites? How did they try and re-co-opt the, the, the protesters in an attempt to, to save their own position within the state? Right. So, I mean, I will say I was on, you know, I was, I was in Lebanon during some of these protests. I was certainly not one of the people, you know, who was documenting this uh, minute to minute, right? But, but I did notice in my time there and in following, you know, remotely from the states, uh, this really interesting strategy that the Lebanese political elite deployed. Um, I will say as a, as a starting point in the first two to three weeks of the protests, almost every single leader of every single major sort of sectarian political party expressed in some way uh, support for the protest movement. And this is already a sort of bizarre contradiction, right? These are protests that, you know, at the time and, you know, to some extent now were explicitly aimed, you know, Kilonyani, Kilon, all of them means all of them. Yeah. And yet the people who these protests were directed at, including in a bizarre twist, Gibran Basile, who was the personal target of a lot of these sort of uh, protest chants, um, came out and said, we are with the protesters. You know, their goals and our goals are aligned, which is clearly not true. Um, but they were, but but I think I think of this as the first stage in setting up a broader strategy, which was that I think in the second stage these uh, these party leaders decided to actually actively and use mezzo level party officials to actively uh, you know organize local organize uh, partisans to protest in local strongholds, right? Yeah. So in areas that have been historically controlled for or controlled by our local bases of support for these different political parties, you actually saw the parties inciting their loyalists to, to rise up and actively protest. And of course, again, this is a contradiction, right? You're organizing people to protest against who? Against in part you. Um, and, And so a part of this project was a sort of, reframing of the discursive focus of blame, right? A re- a redirection of the focal point of blame for the, of the protests for, for partisan loyalists. Exactly. Right? And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, so what I found, and this was not just from, you know, being there, but also talking with, with friends who were part of this movement was that increasingly there was a sort of, uh, you know, differentiated and, and fractionalized understanding of, of who the target of blame was. And increasingly I saw, you know, some people thought the target of blame was Hezbollah, right? Mm-hmm. Some people thought the, the key target of blame was, you know, the future movement and the legacy of Herrerism. Um, some people thought the target of blame was the central bank and all of these had different political inst- implications. And so it was no longer all of them. It was, you know, all of them, but especially X. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that coupled with COVID leads to the the diffusion of the of the protest movements and the 
the splintering of different grievances, which which I guess dilutes the the power of the slogan away from all of them means means all of them. But uh, Christiana, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but I wonder if I can ask one final question, if that's okay. Sure, of course. And that is, where do you see things going now and sort of in the future in Lebanon, given the, um, the, the processes of not governing that we've talked about and given the, the co-optation of protest movements? I mean, granted, COVID is, is proving somewhat of a hindrance to, to most things at present, but where do you see uh, the, the future of these types of relationships playing out, particularly after the, the Beirut blast, of course? Right. So, I mean, I'm not in the business of predicting. <laughs> sure. And a, lot of, <laughs> and a lot of this will be up to, to organizers on the ground who are doing and have been doing really, really amazing work. You know, of course, between COVID and this, this explosion, I think uh, there's been a lot outside of Lebanese uh, activists and organizers and protesters control that has contributed to some demobilization. Um, I would also say that protesters are faced not only with the task of sort of coordinating around common goals, which, as I mentioned, may be a bit more difficult uh, moving forward because of the, the role of these parties, uh, but also because of the re-autocratization of the Lebanese state and the Lebanese security apparatus and the private security apparatuses of many of these political parties. You see a real ramp, a really dangerous ramping up of, um, you know, arrests or harassment uh, and, and, you know, a general sense that, you know, even things like freedom of the press, which seemed more guaranteed in Lebanon prior to the protests, uh, are fading quickly. Yeah. Um, and so these are all really hindering protesters' ability to, to continue to, to act and to organize. But, you know, I, I think the, the bright spot in the short to medium future, if one could call it that, is that as of now, uh, there are elections, both national and municipal, scheduled for 2022. Now, you know, of course, it remains to be seen whether those will actually be held. And the government certainly has the ability to put those off. Yeah. But if they are held or if, you know, one of them is held, it does provide a narrow opening for for these newly formed and newly empowered um you know, anti-party cartel movements in different forms sure. um, to get, even if it's a minority, even if it's a small minority, a minority of representatives into parliament or into municipal governments. And I, you know, I, I wish I could say that there was a path to sort of broad sweeping hmm. institutional and representational change. Uh, and I, I just don't think that's the case at this point. I think the change will likely be very small and incremental. And, and that to me is the, probably the most, uh, positive sort of uh, realistic outcome to envision and in the in, in the short to medium future of course well thank you for for peering deep into your crystal ball I appreciate that uh, <laughs> it's it's not an easy thing to do but but I appreciate you taking the time to do that and thank you so much for for recording this today it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to chat with you lots of absolutely fascinating ideas and work and I'm looking forward to seeing the dissertation come out as a as a monograph in the not too distant future hopefully so for anyone uh, wanting to to follow Christiana's work you can follow her on Twitter at CM Pereira or visit her website at christianaperera.com so Christiana thank you so much for spending time with us today thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure as always thank you for listening until next time <laughs>